Acts chapter 1. Dr. J. Edwin, Edwin Orr is a historian on the revivals that have happened in the United States of America. He's, he has passed since uh, he written his book on it. But he writes that at, in 1775 to 1783, that time following the American Revolution, there was an unprecedented moral slump in the United States of America. Drunkenness was epidemic. Out of a population of 5 million people, 300,000 were confirmed drunkards. Profanity was of the most shocking kind. For the first time in the history of the American settlement, women were afraid to go out at night. Bank robberies were a daily occurrence. During the same time, a poll at Harvard University, founded to minister the gospel to the Indians, discovered that not one believer could be found in the student body. Historian Dr. Kenneth Scott Latourette spoke of this period. It seemed that Christianity was about to be ushered out of the affairs of men, end of quote. The chief of the Supreme Court, John Marshall, a concerned believer, wrote to, uh, to a friend this assessment. The church is too far gone to ever be redeemed. It was at this time that God stirred the hearts of Pastor Isaac Bacchus. Um, some of you lived in Connecticut or, or have uh, attachments to Connecticut. He uh, uh, pastored a church and was one of the, the first Baptists there in Connecticut, uh, in Norwich, Connecticut. But he wrote a paper entitled, A Plea for the Revival of Religion. And when you read about, uh, in the old days, of people referring to religion, it uh, refers to the practice and Christianity. It's not talking about dead religion here, so understand that. It distributed this paper to pastors throughout the United States, calling these men to set aside the first Monday of every month to open churches all day for prayer and fasting. And surprisingly, the response was phenomenal. Nearly every church set that day aside, and people gathered to pray and fast, beseeching God to bring the desperately needed revival. And true to his promise, God answered the prayers of his people. And this moving of the Holy Spirit became known as the second great awakening. And the first was with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield sometime before the revolution. In this time of revival, there were millions that were added as a result of the revival and changed and saved and added to the church. And the church began to impact and influence society. And out of that revival, there's always uh, Christian fruits that result from that revival. And that is where the public education, education system actually came out of to teach people to read the Bible. And the worldwide missionary movement, uh, Vatterniram Judson and others, uh, resulted from this Second Great Awakening. And it also laid the foundation, theological foundations, for the abolition of slavery. So things, other things always result from revival here. But it began with God's prayer and people getting right with God. The book of Acts is a key book for understanding our role in prayer as a church. Beginning in January, we looked at eternity's vision. And we looked and examined uh, the, the role of eternity in helping us have an eternal mindset if we are going to understand where we are on this little dot, on this speck of dust, flying around the Milky Way. And God's purpose for us in that, we need to understand eternity. 
And Ephesians 5, 6 tells us our relationship to eternity, our little lives, that little, remember that little dot on the big rope. To redeem the time. To buy back the opportunities that God has given you. To live for His glory. To not live in a lackadaisical state in Christianity. To live in a spiritually on fire state. To redeem the time. To take full advantage of the opportunities He's given us. Then we look at 2 Chronicles 20. How Israel, Judah specifically, was being uh, encroached upon by the enemies of darkness, Syria. And by the time they realized it was right upon their doorstep, it was too late to do anything of any military power. And it was the best time. Because it drove them to their knees. And Jehoshaphat led his people to pray. And he says, Lord, we don't know what to do. But we know you do. And our eyes are on you to rescue us. And God does. And God sends a choir out. The people sing praises about the the beauty of God's holiness. And God works. And the people, the enemies marching against God's glory are confused and they start killing each other. And God rescues Israel because His people got on their knees and prayed. We talked about pushing back the darkness. Then we looked at the Lord's praying. Five snapshots, particularly in the book of Luke because he put such an emphasis on prayer. Five snapshots of the Lord Jesus Christ praying. And the result of that. From praying before He chose His men. Praying that Peter wouldn't be uh, 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 sifted like wheat when he was tempted. That night in the garden. Etc. Praying on the cross. And what God did through the Lord Jesus' prayers. And then the last few times we've looked at the Lord's praying, broke it up into two parts. Praying God's big agenda. Praying for the things that will outlive you. God's big agenda, His glory. And then last week, praying for the things with which you will die with. Your daily bread. Needing forgiveness of sins. And forgiving others. Those key core concepts in Jesus' prayer that he asked his disciples to pray. That set the priorities in our prayers. And today we're going to look at the church's praying this morning. The church's praying. Now next week we're going to uh, look at using the Psalms in our own prayers. And it's going to be more of a, a, uh, um, a, 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 a teaching and a practical time. Make sure you bring your Bibles. I'm going to ask you to, uh, I'm going to give you opportunity by yourself to pray uh, specific psalms to help guide you to that uh, and through that. But I hope it will be transformational in your life because it was something that was a key and a secret to George Mueller's life and transformational in George Mueller's life. And some of you might know about George Mueller. He had an incredible prayer life. He writes something in his diaries. He said he struggled with prayer for such a long time. It seemed so stale. He would pray for hours. It seemed so stale. Until he learned to pray scripture. And it spawned off an amazing transformation in his prayer life. Brought life into it. So we'll share that with you next week. And then we're going to do something awkward and weird and strange. Which shouldn't be. We're going to have a morning of corporate prayer. Corporate prayer led through various people, praying through the book of Ephesians. And then it's time for you to pray with others as well. I'd say, well, what about the teaching of the Word of God? You're getting it. 
And that's why we're going to pray. Because the teaching of the Word of God isn't an end to itself. It's to push us to Christian application. So I'd like you this morning to turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. The book of Acts is the pinnacle of the New Testament concerning the practice of corporate prayer. Um, I gave you somewhat of the foundation of corporate prayer. And when I talk about corporate prayer, I'm talking about um, in addition to your private praying, your individual praying, praying with other believers. Well, when is it corporate prayer? Well, I think we could make the case for Matthew 18 that it's when it's at least two people, right? Two or three people and more. <clears throat> the word in Matthew 18, 19, and 20 that says uh, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask. That word for agree is the Greek word symphoneo. Symphoneo. Where we get the word symphony, right? Well, the word symphony originates. And it can mean to sound together. To sound together. And it's used for your musicians to uh, um, uh, describe instruments that are playing together in harmony. I mean, you've got a bassoon and you've got a piccolo, right? You've got violins, you've got everything else in between all that. But when they play together, it makes beautiful music. Somebody says this, when used about prayer, this word refers to prayers spoken aloud. It is audible prayer. How do you know it's audible prayer? Because two people, uh, it's two people praying, uh, uh, it's people praying together. And one person's got to be praying aloud if they're praying together, right? He says, in the sounding together, one prays and the other follows silently, winging those desires of that one praying heavenward along with the one who prays aloud. The Lord's people subordinate themselves one to another and lead one another in prayer. And upon such favor, he says, uh, excuse me, he says, upon such prayer there is the unique favor of God. Because he says, there I am in the midst of it. And Jesus is saying that he is present when two or more people pray together. He's giving us, giving us an, a, a promise of power that comes when God's people unite in their requests to him. And so as the early church and the early believers matured and the church was formed, Acts reveals God's pleasure in this. God's heart in this. When his people together as a body turn from trusting in their own strength and their own wisdom to say, our eyes are on you. You do according to your word. It depends solely on him. And he delights in their gathering before him in prayer and he responds and he moves And I just want to share a few verses here from the book of Acts. This is not an exhaustive study here, but let's look at Acts chapter 1. So Acts is volume 2 of Luke. The end of Luke. Jesus told his disciples to gather together and return to Jerusalem and pray and wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And it should not surprise us that that's where we find them in Acts chapter 1. You see, obedience and prayer precedes God's great movements. Obedience and prayer precedes God's great movements. And if you want the message, that's the message this morning. You could stand up and leave if you want to, but work with me here. Acts chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room. 
where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. So what he's saying, it wasn't just the twelve men, but the women followers of Jesus, the men followers of Jesus, they were all together, they were all in what? One accord, they had their hearts united in prayer together. With the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. They continued in prayer and supplication. You can imagine, at this time, in the history of God's work, the questions that would be going through the minds of the disciples after Jesus ascended. Can you imagine the questions? But yet here they are in the first recorded prayer meeting uh, in the book of Acts. Both men and women are present, and I would probably assure you that all of them were participating. These believers had been in the presence of Christ before he had ascended, right? They had grown accustomed to personal communication with Jesus as a real human being, hadn't they? Somebody says they were praying because they were physically separated from the ascended Jesus and prayer was their only means of communicating with him now. They were continuing something that already had begun before when he was with them, but now he was gone and they knew to talk with him. They had to pray. And surely they would remember some of his teachings there, we looked at, where two or three are gathered. There am I in the midst of them. And it's with these unanswered questions, and awaiting for the promise of the Spirit, and the uncertainties of the future before him, that the disciples found their confidence and unity through prayer. They didn't fret over what they couldn't predict. What they did do was speak to the one who knew the future. And contrast that with their experience in the Garden of Gethsemane six weeks before. They were making progress, weren't they? And when we look back on this passage from our view today, we can rejoice in how God prepared these Christ followers for these grand things that he's going to do in their future. Harry Ironsides uh, wrote this almost 100 years ago. What a beautiful picture. This is the preparation for the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But do not misunderstand. The coming of the Spirit did not depend on their prayer. It had been predicted of old that he must come on the day of Pentecost. But that being a settled thing in the mind of God, he moved on the hearts of his people that they might be in a prayerful attitude. They are to be endued with power. And you see, when God is going to do some great thing, he moves the hearts of people to pray. He stirs them up to pray in view of that which he is about to do, so that they might be prepared for it. You see the role there of sovereignty and responsibility. These early church members, they were walking in a moment-by-moment faith, trusting God, and through corporate prayer, they were asking Him to direct their paths and to mature them as a body. So corporate prayer was the fuel, was the stability of their lives and fellowship. They prayed constantly. Um, Look there in verse 13 and 14. Verse 14 says, These all continued. Continued. That word there uh, is the idea of repeated or habitual action. 
repeated or habitual action. This is a company of people that in 10 days' time is going to explode the biggest spiritual bombshell that's ever been exploded on earth. The pouring out of the Spirit of Himself at Pentecost. It's going to change the course of history forever. It changed your future. It changed your past. And it might help us here to see what kind of a company it is that God used to turn the world upside down. So that's what we're going to do here in the book of Acts. The first thing I want you to see is that the Spirit-filled church begins by praying together. It began by praying together. That's what all started. That's where the, 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 the uh, unfolding plan here, the drama that God was about to unfold before them, the reaching even Spain and Rome with the gospel, and 2,000 years later, uh, Hope Bain began right there in a little prayer room. Don't underestimate corporate prayer. You know what happens in Acts 2. If you don't, God pours out His Spirit. And those people are changed. And God adds to their number. So God does His work. Are they going to stop praying? No. Go to Acts 2, verse 42. Acts 2, verse 42. (coughs) It says, after those that were added down to the church, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in, and says, literally, in the original, it says, in the prayers. In the prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Secondly, the Spirit-filled church is devoted to praying together. When it describes them as continuing steadfastly, that's the idea. They were passionately devoted to this. Like this wasn't a, I don't know, I'm going to make it tonight. This is something they saw as a core value in their church. They were passionately devoted in this. That Holy Spirit, He had come down, He had occupied His people. Calvary had devastated sin. The resurrection, the ascension of Jesus reminded uh, His followers that His cause is not advanced by simple human effort, is it? And while on earth, Jesus was able to do the cause of advancement, wasn't he? But now he sent his spirit to do the same work through his followers. And the church knows its dependence. It knows it needs the Lord. And it meets together, and it prays, and it submits and trusts. So, that prayer meeting before Pentecost, after Pentecost, continues. And the spiritual church is devoted to prayer. Harry Ironside says again, prayer is an expression of dependence and when the people of God really feel their need, you will find them flocking together to pray. Neglected prayer meeting indicates very little recognition of one's true need. The church can look successful in all kinds of terms of organization, of programs, can be tremendously active, appear to be prosperous, But if you want to know whether she's a real church or not, examine the amount of prayer that takes place. Prayer is the inevitable conclusion of true doctrine. They're praying together. Is this a staple in their diet now? This is the meat and potatoes and carrots of the pot roast, all right? All those things have to be there, by the way. 
um, in order to be a good pot roast. Uh, and this is one of them, okay? In the spiritual pot roast. Look at the result of the corporate prayer of the early church. In verse 43, it's translated as fear. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. This is the idea of an awe that came upon every soul, that is, of the, including the multitude who wasn't a part of the church. People who before had derided believers now had a reverential fear at, at, the, at the presence of God with His disciples. Awe. Why? Well, they had an impact, didn't they? Corporate prayer. MacArthur says, Sadly, prayer is much neglected in the church today. Programs, concerts, entertainment, or the testimonies of the rich and famous draw large crowds. Prayer meetings, on the other hand, attract only the faithful few. That is undoubtedly the reason for much of the weakness in the contemporary church. Unlike the early church, we have forgotten the Bible's commands to pray at all times and to be devoted to prayer. You have to agree that the ministry here of corporate prayer is a result of the Spirit's Spirit filling. And it had a connection with its power and its usefulness. So what happens next? Well, in chapter 3, um, <clears throat> there's a little situation that happens. Um, they woke up that day and didn't know the things that were going to happen to them that, that, that day. Peter and John go to the temple to what? First chapter 3, verse 1. Surprise, to pray, right? And as they go to the temple to pray, there's a man who they heal. A testify of Christ. Christ's power. And the same people that hated what Jesus was doing before now bring them before uh, their their rulers and say, what are you doing? And Peter has a sermon. He says, we can't obey you. We have to obey God. And they say, uh, no, you can't teach about Jesus. In verse, chapter 4, verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in hold and the next day. More people believe. Peter addresses the Sanhedrin. They see, they see the boldness of Peter and John. And they say, we've got to obey God rather than men. Sorry. And they're let go in verse 23 of chapter 4. Now what are they going to do? What are they going to do now? They had been in prison for preaching. They had been released. So they're probably going to respond with fear, anxiety, or look for safety, right? But what do they do? They chop their legs down and they get on their knees. They go straight to their knees. Here was the kingdom of darkness against the kingdom of light. Here was the parts of the power of the world against the church of Christ. And they go to scripture. They go to the second psalm, which perhaps was maybe what they had read that day, or maybe they were just applying in their situation. And they bring the second psalm, and they plead their case before Christ from the second psalm, that the nations are gathered against you. They're angry. And then they pray. And you know what they pray for? Acts 4. Verse 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. They lifted up their voices with one accord. Corporate prayer again. 
and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against this Christ. They recognized that the real enemy they were gathered against was not poor little Peter and John, but against Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, when the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be God. God, you're in sovereign in all this. And now, Lord, here's our request. We understand the theology of it. We understand the ancient themes of spiritual warfare. Now, Lord, here's our request. Behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that they speak all boldness. That with all boldness they may speak the word. By stretching forth thine hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. What do they pray for? They pray for boldness. They pray for boldness. Boldness for what? To continue speaking the truth. They didn't ask for their circumstances to be easier. They didn't say take away those nasty persecutors and help us have an easy life. They did present the persecutors to Christ, didn't they? But they prayed for boldness. Because that's something that comes from the Holy Spirit. That's not going to come naturally. Courage. Fearlessness. And verse 31. And when they had prayed, God shakes the place. You think God likes that kind of a request? The place was shaken where they assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. You know why they were filled with the Holy Ghost? Because they had emptied themselves of themselves. And they spake the word of God with boldness. Let it be known and understood that when somebody speaks the word of God with boldness, in spite of the temptations to fear, that is a spiritual sign. That is a sign of the Spirit in them. Because it is not a natural thing. They prayed. They're filled. God's Spirit makes it possible. He takes the speaker and gives this enabling. And He acts on the ones who are listening and deals with their minds, their hearts, their wills. Here's the answer. Now, does every prayer receive this immediate answer? Pray and all of a sudden the building's shaking. No. No. In this case, God strengthens the faith of the believers. He hears their petitions. His mighty power responds to their cry. And he's telling them, just as I have shaken this building, I'm going to use you to shake the city. And I'm going to shake the kings and the rulers against me. Boldness. We've got to move on. Go thirdly. So thirdly here, the spirit-filled church is emboldened by praying together. Quickly go to Acts 6. Acts 6. We could pass over this one very quickly. But these are the two wings of the airplane. Acts 6, verse 4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Conflict had risen up. 
people probably in the role of deacons have been raised up to put down murmuring. One of the un... One of the things that um, is not fun about a deacon's job. And God impresses on the leadership there that they need to focus and give themselves attention continually to, and literally in the original, it's the prayers and to the ministry of the Word. There's a heavy workload. And it wasn't just enough that they would minister and teach the Word. That would be like flying around with one wing on an airplane. But there are two wings to the airplane that fly well. And it is the prayers, giving attention to the prayers and to the ministry of the Word. You're saying, does that mean that they were, um, that the, the apostles were praying together? Probably it does. Probably it does. They're also probably praying um, uh, personally. But in the syntax of this verse here, the way the verse is written, there's, there's, there's an essence of it that has to do with leading the prayers. In other words, mobilizing the church to the prayers. Leading the community's prayer services. Praying together as apostles. In other words, it was important to pray. It was central to the church's vitality in advance because it was essential to Jesus' ministry. And out of all the ministries that they could let go, what they could not let go was the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and leading the prayer life of the church. They could not let go of that. And they knew that they could do no ministry Without the power of the Holy Spirit. They could not teach the word. They could not minister the word. Without mobilizing the people to pray. And praying themselves. So fourthly. The spirit filled church is sharpened by praying together. It sharpens. You know when you sharpen something. You got to rub off what doesn't need to be there. So you get a sharp point. And prayer and the ministry of the word are inseparable. Go with me to Acts chapter 12. I'm sure someone thought we'd end up here, land here. Peter gets in trouble again. That boldness gets him in trouble. Trouble with those who don't like that boldness. In Acts 12, verse 5. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Angel lets him out. Verse 12. And when he had considered the thing, when he gets out of prison, he's like, what do I do now? Isn't it interesting that he knew where to go and where the people would be? He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. One of the old Puritans said, it was an angel that summoned Peter out of the prison. 
but it was the prayers of the people that summoned the angel. Peter is surrounded by walls and guards, isn't he? In prison. More importantly, and more powerfully, Peter is surrounded by the prayers of his church. And one of those has got to give. And you saw here in the passage which one gave. Christians were in prison. James had been killed. Peter's life had been threatened. He was on the verge of being executed. It's possible that the homes of Christians were filled and active with believers praying for believers in very aggressive ways. In fact, the word in verse 5, prayer was made without ceasing, is the idea of being kept up, was being carried on, without ceasing, literally stretched out, intense, urgent, strained. It was the energizing supplication of the righteous, some said. Their love for Peter, the love for the advance of God's work, generated fervent praying. And the longing for the supernatural working of God, the believers trusted in, generates prayer together. They bombarded the throne of God during that week Peter lay in prison. This is the kind of prayer that makes iron gates yield. Herod failed to realize what he was up against. Here were some people who might have seemed very weak, without weapons. But he did not realize they could summon the warriors of heaven to intercede on Peter's behalf. That phrase, translated without ceasing, is translated fervent in other passages. Fervently. In fact, it's used in Luke 22:44 to describe the Lord's Prayer in Gethsemane, where drops of blood poured out as he prayed fervently. And what does it tell us? The Spirit-filled church is delivered by praying together. Delivered. Spurgeon com- commenting on this event. Going through Peter's thoughts, and he says, where shall I go? Then he remembered that it was prayer meeting night down at John Mark's mother's house. That was the place to go. They were not gathered to hear a sermon, but to pray. This was the business on hand. And many were gathered, a great rebuke to numerous believers today. By practice, by conviction, and by instinct, the people of God gathered together to pray for great matters. Here was a crowded meeting, continuing well after midnight with both men and women. Can we open those doors? It's too warm in here. Which one's going to be stronger, the dungeon and its guards or the prayers of the church? And the answer from this passage was the prayers of the church. Final. X13. Verses 1 through 4. Now there were in the church that were at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Serene, and Manian, which had been brought up with Saul, Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. As they ministered, excuse me, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. 
So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed into Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. What launched the first missionary journey, the expansion of the church? And so the spirit-filled church is expanded by praying together. Notice here that the practice of prayer together is linked to the advancement of the cause of Christ. A ministry movement was launched in Antioch. The church had, had seen success, but they had seen persecution. But they were not ready to pull away from their foundation of prayer. They're ministering there. These men are ministering. They're already serving the Lord. And uh, verse 2 says, as they ministered the Lord and fasted. Prayer is going on. Fasting is a way to hone our prayer. Sharpen our prayer. Get our eyes off ourselves. Get our eyes on the Lord. Barnes says, The church humbled itself, and the primitive missionary sought, as all others should do, the divine blessing to attend the laborers of those employed in this work. The results show that the prayer was heard. They prayed. And God sends two men who begin expansion of the gospel of the Gentiles to whom you and I are the benefits today. We could look in Acts 16 and see the Spirit-filled church is there in jail on the missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are in jail on that first missionary journey, Acts 16. And they're imprisoned. And it says, and they're praying and singing praises together. They're praying in prison. It's a good place to pray. Can't do anything else, right? Good place to pray. And they're victorious. God breaks the shackles right off of them. And God adds people to that church. And Philippi. What do we say about this? Acts is saturated with the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Movement of God that is precipitated, that begins when God's people pray and they obey. The church had its beginning in prayer, it was nourished in prayer, and it was propelled by prayer through its early days. What has happened to us? What has happened to me, who was supposed to lead in this? What has happened? Well, we don't need it, right? We don't think we need it. We're good. We're okay. Or we pray when things get bad. Christ is praying, right? But it's supposed to power everything we do. Samuel Chadwick said this. The one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. R.A. Torrey, who worked side by side with D.L. Moody and uh, uh, was the first president of Moody Bible Institute, describes Satan's perspective on prayer, and he says this. It's powerful if we think about it, because we can get so distracted. You may have your brilliant university-bred preachers and your high-priced choirs and your gifted sopranos and altos and tenors and basses and your wonderful quartets, your immense men's Bible classes, yes, and your Bible conferences and your Bible institutes and your special evangelistic services. All you please of them. 
It does not in the least trouble me. If you will only leave out of them the power of the Lord God Almighty, sought and obtained by the earnest, persistent, believing prayer that will not take no for an answer. But when the devil sees a man or a woman who really believes in prayer, who knows how to pray, and who really does pray, and above all, when he sees a whole church on its face before God in prayer, he trembles as much as he ever did, for he knows that his day in that church or community is at an end. So here's a few action steps. Ephesians 3, verse 14 through 21 is a tremendous prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians. He prays for eyes to be enlightened, to see God's glory and His love, for us to be changed and transformed in our inner heart, inner minds. On the personal level, would you pray that prayer three times this week? Pray that prayer three times this week. Nothing magical in a number. If you pray every day, it would be wonderful. But start there. Would you pray that three times? Well, what do I say? Pray the verses in a, in a, uh, read the verses in a prayerful spirit to the Lord. You want to add to that and, and fill in? Go ahead, but start there. Secondly, at least one time this week, take time with your family and pray Ephesians 3, 14-21 in your family devotions. I don't have family devotions. Start this week. Alright? Start with that. Lord, help us as a family to... Ephesians three fourteen to 21 Thirdly, some of you are unable to make it on prayer meeting on Wednesday nights because of work or because of the, uh, the driving uh, situations at night, because of eyesight, etc. I understand that. Would you meet up with another believer at a time that works with you and pray? All right? Meet with another believer this week and pray Ephesians three fourteen to 21 